0: Well, good morning again. Um, thank you for uh, that song. Um, I think uh, as, as I was uh, listening to it, uh, the, the words a uh, pilgrim and stranger uh, resonate in, in many ways with, I think, where we're going today uh, in uh, our text. If you want to go ahead and open up to um, Matthew chapter 26 or uh, pull it up on your phone or whatever it is that, that you like to do. Um, I with you to do that. Our text is going to be Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. It's a lot of sixes. I don't know if I should be worried about that, um, but uh, so be it. Um, but yeah, that, that uh, pilgrim and stranger, sometimes the feeling that way um, can lead us to a place of, of a great deal of, of fear, of um, vulnerability, <laughs> of, of uncertainty. And so before we dive into the text here, I just want to ask you a question. And that is where do you go when you are at the end of yourself? What do you do in times of utmost trouble? Who do you turn to whenever fear and despair begin to close in? It may be kind of a dreary kind of question to ask on a bright summer day. Um uh, but the text that we're going to be looking at today is is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, and it's, it's interesting that this is the text I landed with uh, during this sermon series, because about six months ago, um, when we were preaching through Mark, I also preached the Garden of Gethsemane text from Mark. And so here we are in this, this scene again with Matthew. And I think in many ways it's, it's uh, appropriate. And this, this text has haunted me throughout my life uh, and, and, and sort of rung in my heart. Uh, and so that question, uh, where do you go when you're at the absolute end of yourself? Uh, where do you go in your own Garden of Gethsemane moments? Uh, th- this last year, or l- 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 this last week for me was uh, my three-year anniversary of moving to Seattle. Um, I arrived in Seattle three years ago on the 4th of July, and uh, got here with enough time to throw all my stuff into the apartment where I was living at the time and make it out to Lake Union to watch the fireworks. And I was wide-eyed the whole time, amazed. This is my city. I live here now. This is amazing. You know, uh, sitting there in front of Lake Union, uh, there's, there's this vast expanse of water, mountains in the distance, trees. I was moving here from Abilene, Texas. None of those things are in Abilene, Texas. I once visited this, this, it's called Abilene Lake. It was kind of like a mud pit. Uh, and so that's what I had for lakes and Abilene. And so being in Seattle was this amazing experience. And the, the first uh, couple months of being here was enchanting. But a couple months in, my life took a turn. And it was one of the hardest seasons that I've lived through. Some of you know this, and some of you may not, but when I moved to Seattle, I was married. And two months after I moved here, my wife at the time came to me and asked for a separation. Uh, I had moved across the country, away from everyone that I had known, everything that was familiar to me, and arrived in a strange place, enchanting, but strange. and two months into that I realized that I was going to be completely alone and so I I remember that that day that uh, she called me over and said hey I want to talk to you about something and I said okay what, what is it and she just said I I think I want a separation and I was I was stunned I was shocked I was afraid I had no idea how to respond or what to say or do um, and so I just said, I need some time to figure this out, and so I went for a walk, um, left the apartment where we were living, and, and uh, walked over to this park that was nearby, um, Denny Park, if any of you are familiar with that, we were living in Belltown at the time, um, and it's this, it's this park that is filled with trees, kind of right in the thick of, of uh, downtown, you know, right next to the Space Needle, on and on, and but you walk in there, and it's we just surrounded by trees and a little garden in the middle of it. And I walked to that park and just sort of collapsed under a tree and began sobbing um, because I was so afraid and had no idea what my life was going to look like. Uh, in that moment, I finally realized I needed to reach out to someone, and so I grabbed my phone, and the first person I wanted to call was my dad actually and and i pulled out my phone and tried calling him and it rang and rang and rang and he didn't answer and uh, looking back on it it's a little humorous to imagine this at the time it was obviously really distressing Uh, he had the day off his phone was in the house he was on the back porch having a relaxing time Um, and i was trying to get a hold of him because i had no idea where to turn and what to do and um, after that I ended up calling a, a close friend of mine, who we became friends back in high school. Uh, he was in my wedding, uh, and I was in his as well. And to this very day, we still keep in touch often. And I called him and, and reached out, and he had a, a great deal of, of comfort to offer and, and words to share. And eventually I did get a hold of my dad. Um, but the, this scene in my life, uh, in the midst of this sort of city... Park, garden, on the ground, afraid, not knowing where to turn, uh, is I think one of my own Garden of Gethsemane moments. Um, And so I turn the question to you again. Where do you turn in your own Garden of Gethsemane moments? Now, before we jump into the text, I want to remind you of where we've been in the sermon series. It's uh, called Revealing the Father. And this idea that we're uh, working through is essentially that in order to know the Father, we look toward and know the Son. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And Mark actually kind of opened us up with that a few weeks ago in the first sermon of this series on Father's Day. And then after that, Summer came and shared with us some of Jesus' teaching of the Father, that the Father is a provider who gives to us, who we should not worry about our food, our clothing, um, but he clothes the grass, so on and so forth. That, that God is a God who uh, provides. Uh, and then last week, Randy uh, preached and brought us to the scene in which Jesus overturns the tables in the temple. And that, God is a, that Jesus cries out, this is my father's house. It is a house of prayer, not of thieves. And so we've been looking at these moments in Jesus' life, that reveal the Father to us. And this scene, I think, is one of the most tender of those moments in which Jesus turns to the Father and pours out his heart in deep distress and prayer. And so let's read this text together and enter into it. Again, Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow even to the point of death. Stay here. Keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. And then he returned to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray. So that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found the disciples sleeping because their eyes were heavy. And so he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be near to us this morning as we enter into this scene of deep distress and despair. May you help us to move into our own Garden of Gethsemane moments and sit with you and before you and bring them to you. I pray that we would see you and know you more through these words in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. And so as we go through this text, I really just want to pull out three primary themes that I see. So I think I'm, I'm learning a little bit about this preaching thing. I have three points for you. Um, I thought about making them all start with the same letter, but I'm not quite there yet, so I didn't do that. Um, but the, the themes that I want to move through, two, two of the three of them actually do start with the same letter, so we're close. Um, but the three themes are... Pain, temptation, and trust. And so we'll, we'll move through those, pain, temptation, and trust, and look at them, beginning with this first theme of pain. I mentioned earlier, this text has, has haunted me throughout a lot of my life. It's always meant a great deal to me. When I was a child, my mother had fairly severe depression, and so that shaped a great deal of my own experience and, and how I viewed uh, pain and and heartache Um, and as an adult i've experienced it myself from time to time and so from my earliest years there are all these scenes throughout scripture that have just gripped my heart uh scenes like uh psalm six where king david is aching from sorrow in his very bones and it says he's soaking through his bed with tears Scenes like uh, from Ecclesiastes, where King Solomon is looking around and despairing that everything is utterly meaningless. Scenes like where Job is sitting in silent despair with three friends for a whole week, only to finally break that silence to lament his own life. These scenes have always given me hope. And especially this scene, where our own Lord and Savior, King and Messiah, Jesus, the Lord of all, aches with trouble, falls to the ground, and prays. These scenes have shown me that Christian faith is compatible with the deep pain of the world and of our own lives and hearts. To to see and witness these mighty kings who have all the riches and power in the world, at the absolute end of themselves and approaching God, showed me that our faith, this faith, has a deep, deep truth that goes beyond, far beyond the here and now of our things and our stuff and our wealth, but also remains so close and intimately present in the here and now of our pain and our distress. our sorrow. This faith actually addresses real life and all the fears and crises that we face. And I want to say, growing up in church, uh, particularly uh, with exposure to the the true pain of depression, I, I have seen and witnessed the church do a really lousy job responding to this. That there are so many churches who cite commands not to worry and not to fear as a way of calling down condemnation on those who struggle with anxiety and depression. And yes, those commands are there. Just a few weeks ago in the Sermon on the Mount, we heard Jesus say, do not worry. That Paul writes, do not be anxious about anything. And yet he then says, but instead pray about everything, casting your cares upon the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament, there's the command to fear not. We find it again in the New Testament out of the mouths of angels. Fear not. Those commands are there. But it's not to tell us to not fear and not worry, but rather where to go with our fears and our worries. Jesus himself said, blessed are those who mourn. Heartbrokenness is not a sin. It's where we go with our broken hearts. It's not whether or not we have joy or despair that makes us a Christian. It's where we turn with it, bringing it to our Heavenly Father. This is what Jesus calls us to. And this is what we see Jesus doing in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet, it's so hard to turn to our Heavenly Father sometimes. It's so tempting to try to do it ourselves, or to isolate ourselves from other people. And this, that brings us to our second theme that I want to look at, is this theme of temptation. Because this scene is a scene of temptation. One of the commentaries that I was reading in preparation for this described the prayer in Gethsemane as the Lord's Lord's Prayer. That Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And here, he shows us how to pray that and how to live that. At the center of this scene are Jesus' words, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Now, Usually I have read this as Jesus sort of having a little teaching moment with his disciples while they're tired and falling asleep. You know, he turns to them and, and, and says, you know, oh, guys, you know, you need, to, you need to pray so that you won't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But that teaching moment doesn't really line up with the absolute utter sorrow and pain that we just saw Jesus expressing. Maybe he is teaching in some regard, but another commentary that I read actually underscored this as a window into Jesus' own experience in the garden. It is not merely teaching for teaching's sake, he's teaching from his own experience in that moment. That in the garden, Jesus experiences temptation. And so he says, Watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation just as he returns to pray for a second time. He practices what he preaches. And then look at what he says next. Okay, we can pull together all the greatest minds in the world to try to sort out the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is three persons and yet one. And uh, believe me, we've tried. There are libraries and libraries of books on this. And nothing that we say can take away the mystery of it. And this is no less true with the doctrine of the incarnation, that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. And so here in the scene, when Jesus says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, is he just having a teaching moment with his disciples? Or is he speaking to his own experience of the mystery of the incarnation? That Jesus himself is feeling that war between flesh, his fear of dying, and the leading of the Spirit toward the cross. This summer, I've been reading through bits and pieces of the sayings of the Desert Fathers, which is a collection of early monastic wisdom from the first kind of hundred years of Christian faith. And St. Anthony, who was one of the first and actually known as the father of monasticism, uh, one of his sayings is, he says, He says, Whoever has not experienced temptation cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And he even added, without temptations, no one can be saved. Wow. I mean, what a gritty and real faith that we have that actually has room for the the pain and struggles of our world. Temptation is part of our journey to the kingdom of heaven. That's why we prayed, deliver us from evil, not keep us away from evil. We experience evil in this life, and our prayer is for God to deliver us through it. Temptation is part of our journey into the kingdom of heaven, and it was part of Jesus' journey toward the cross. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but rather we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Here in the garden, Jesus is experiencing some of that temptation. This is, I think, kind of a different way of reading this passage than I grew up reading it. I question, have, have any of you seen The Passion of the Christ? In the, in the opening scene, uh, we have Jesus face down in the garden praying this prayer, and then that menacing Satan figure looms in the distance, taunting him. Now, we don't see this explicitly in the text we just read, but I think that it's actually a very accurate portrayal of what's happening here. The tempter truly does loom in the garden of Gethsemane. Not as his own figure, as it was in the wilderness temptations, but in the psyche When we think of Jesus' temptations, we usually think of those wilderness temptations. Whenever the devil comes to him, questions uh, whether or not he's the son of God, eggs him on to commit certain acts. And this scene is similar in some ways. After all, in the wilderness, the devil tempts Jesus three times. Here, Jesus turns to his father in prayer three times. They're similar. But the temptation we find here is far more subtle, and I would say more sinister. Rather than overtly and directly tempting Jesus as in the wilderness, this temptation is subtle. It's more indirect, and it takes root in the depths of the psyche, which is the Greek word for soul. That Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. This is in the depths of his being that he feels this. In the wilderness, he was tempted to commit an act of sin. In Gethsemane, he was tempted to omit an act of grace, the act of grace, going to the cross, the act that would bring grace to all of us. Sometimes in a prayer of confession, we will pray, forgive us for the things that we have done and left undone. It's a far easier thing to confess the things we have done wrong than it is to own up to the many things we have not done right. This past week, myself, I've noticed uh, my own resistance to reaching out. Every morning around 6 a.m., I take the bus downtown and walk down to the hotel where I work during the week. And the people who are out on the streets at 6 a.m. are usually people with nowhere else to go. People unhoused, people who have been out on the streets all night. And as I am walking to work, it is so easy for me to keep my eyes down, avoid contact, just keep walking. These are the things that I have left undone. It reveals the mess of my heart that leans towards suspicion rather than compassion. God forgive me. There's much wrong with the world that's a result of the many things that we have done wrong to it. But injustice persists because of all the many ways that we have failed to put things right. That's precisely what injustice is a lack of justice. Hunger, poverty, homelessness, displacement, these things exist, yes, because a great many wrongs have been done but remain because we have failed to act and put them right. And I don't say this to send us all on some sort of guilt trip into some existential angst about what we should or shouldn't have done, but rather as an invitation that we might begin to reorient ourselves toward the reality that grace not only forgives our wrongs, but also grants us the capacity for wondrous good, This is what Christ has purchased for us. And so may we receive mercy for our failures. May we look toward the day when God will put all things right. And may we look to Jesus who, though he was tempted, was without sin. This leads me to the the last theme that I want to, to talk through. And that's this theme of trust. Now, There's this word that appears throughout Scripture over and over and over again. Uh, And we translate it a bunch of different ways. Faith, believe, trust. It's all the same word in the Greek. And this word appears as a noun, a verb, and an adjective. That's why we have such a hard time translating it. Uh, It's it's all those things. But in, in the Greek, it's the same exact word. Sometimes we translate it believe. And this word believe in our culture, has taken on such a heady and cognitive connotation that we believe something, we cognitively ascend to it. Uh, This word faith is a beautiful word, and yet it's become so steeped in religiosity that I think sometimes we just don't really know what we mean when we say it, Uh, that that faith really just becomes another way of talking about our religion or the things that we we do or the things we believe. Um, And so I would contend for the word trust, Because, like the Greek word, trust functions as a noun, a verb, and an adjective. And unlike belief and faith, it not only implies, but also requires relationship and dependence. To trust is to depend on someone else. And so, this Greek word that we're talking about doesn't appear directly in the passage that we read. But I believe this interaction between Jesus and his Father are the very essence of what trust looks like. But I first want to say what trust is not. Okay, So trust is not blind. It's built up and established through the depth of relationship over time. And, but trust is not certain either. It contains a measure of mystery and unknowing. It requires relying on something or someone outside of yourself. If you have total control and certainty over something, then it wouldn't be trust. There's a wide gulf between certainty and trust. Certainty is located in the mind. It's knowledge. It's understanding. It often leads to pride and bears little fruit and little comfort, honestly. But trust, on the other hand, is located deep in the soul. It offers an eternity of comfort and peace that passes understanding. Just look at Jesus in this scene. Time and time again throughout his ministry, he has said to the disciples that he would suffer, be killed, and be raised on the third day. He knows the future. He knows. He can be certain of it. But that does not cure his distress in this scene. I think a lot of times we think that if only we knew what was going to happen, if only we knew the future, then we would be happy, we'd be at peace, we'd be great. And that is just not true. We don't need certainty. We need trust, which opens us up to vulnerability, which opens us up to love. Jesus' distress is answered not by reminding himself that it's all going to work out in the end, but rather by moving toward his Father. Which leads us to say, what trust is? And so look back at this scene and consider the mutual trust of the Father and the Son. Okay, this is not just a moment of prayer in a garden. It's one of cosmic importance. The history and trajectory of all of eternity hangs in the balance in this moment. The fate of the heavens and earth are at stake. There's a pastor down in Renton who I've heard preach a few times. And talking about this scene, he's actually said, our salvation is because of one word. Nevertheless, your will be done. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Okay, first look at the trust that the Father has in the Son. There was no plan B to Jesus coming to earth and going to the cross. This was the perfect plan of God to redeem the world. And Gethsemane, when the going got tough, countless other times throughout his time on earth, Jesus could have bailed on that plan. He could have turned around in this moment, feeling the weight of what was coming. He could have turned around and said, I'm out. But the Father trusted Jesus to be faithful There's that word again. To the redemption of the world. And Jesus was. And he continues to be to this day. And look also at the trust that the Son has in the Father. When Jesus went to the cross, he knew that his only way back was if the Father and the Spirit brought him back. In Romans it says that he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you. Jesus did not raise his own life back from the dead. God the Father did that by the Spirit. That's why it says in Hebrews that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. It's the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. And this scene is at least one of those moments in which Jesus cries out with tears to be saved from death. And those words, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will, are words of reverence and words of trust. The Father trusted Jesus to be faithful to the redemption of the world, And Jesus trusted the Father to be faithful to the resurrection of the Son. And the Father was. And so as we look into the triune community of God, we see trust perfect and pure. In the garden, Jesus shows us the way, not from pain and temptation, but through it by trusting our Father. Just look at the difference between the beginning of the scene and the end of the scene. At the beginning, Jesus pulls his disciples to him and says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And at the end of the scene, he says, rise, let us go. By moving toward the Father in trust, He's found resolve and can face the trials ahead of Him with confidence. And so back to that first question this morning. Where do you go when you're at the end of yourself? When pain and temptation and despair are closing in, who do you turn to? May we With Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, turn to our Heavenly Father with trust.